Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Carolyn. And this is the 2014 annual Stuff Mom Never Told You summer book edition podcast episode podcast (laughs) chapter four. (laughs) Join our book club. Join our book club. Yeah, every summer... We get real book nerdy and devote a podcast to some aspect of books, publishing, literature, and partially timed with The Fault in Our Stars coming to the big screen this summer. And partially because stuff I've never told you folks really seem to like this idea when we tossed it out on Facebook and Twitter, we're going to talk about... YA lit, young adult literature. That's right. And of course, this immediately, like, all of my research for this episode was really just reverie. Oh, just, yeah. Just me going back into a time-traveling sequence in my mind, remembering uh, reading books like The Giver or Catcher in the Rye, A Separate Piece, The Outsider, Stay Gold, Pony Boy. And I just reread Ender's Game not too long ago in anticipation of seeing the movie. And then I heard that it was not so great. I'm not sure if that's true. Correct me if I'm wrong. But I just didn't want to ruin it because I love Ender's Game so much. Well, and Ender's Game and The Fault in Our Stars are by no means the only YA novels that have been developed into movies. I mean, we are definitely living in a time of of the reign of YA. Oh, yeah. Because if you think about it, Harry Potter, Twilight, and The Hunger Games, those massive franchises as they are now, all started out as YA books. Yeah, YA books that drew humongous audiences of all ages because key to the success of so many books is not just having the 14-year-old or the 8-year-old or however old you are picking up the book or asking mom to buy it. It's sucking in those grown-ups who are just fascinated by the the clear and compelling, incredible storylines that a lot of these books have. And I got to tell you, Caroline, I read The Fault in Our Stars by John Green, which it, right now that's like, I mean, it has been on a bestseller list for ages at this point. And I had seen the book mentioned in a lot of places. I had read a glowing review of it in The New York Times And so, of course, I bought it. I was going on vacation. I wanted a book to read. So I I picked it up and I started reading it, not knowing that it was a YA book. And it's fantastic. It really is a great read. But there were times when I was like, you know, this this really this is really reading like a young adult (laughs) novel. And got on the internet again. Well, what was it about it that made you think it was written like a young adult novel? Just the way that uh, young adult novels are particularly emotive. Mm -hmm. And just the way that John Green writes the characters' internal monologues and their conversations with each other. um, Just there's a particular YA tone Mm -hmm. of just sheer honesty, like cutting through all of the lyric prose that you might see in more adult fiction, which mm-hmm. kind of just sounds like porn. Yeah. Uh, it's, they, they kind of gave it away as a YA book, okay. but it's, it's nonetheless good. I mean, it's, it's another example of a YA title that is now beloved by young and old. 
Well, right. And that has a lot to do with, in 2011, the Association for American Publishers ranked children's and young adult books as the single fastest growing publishing category. A lot of people are having that reaction to these books that, I mean, young or old, wherever you fall, a lot of people just love these books. And I think that's so important. One thing that you hear people say and have heard people say forever about like Harry Potter, for instance, is that it doesn't matter if the writing is that more emotive young adult style or if it is about witches and wizards. The fact that you're getting kids to read is so important. And um, there was a 2010 Scholastic Kids and Family Reading Report survey, for instance, that talked to kids between 9 and 11 62% of those kids said they read books for fun and to be inspired by storylines and characters, and half said that they read books to help figure out who they were and who they could become. So how important that we give them good quality storylines and reading material to sort of go on those personal journeys with. And I remember going on some of those personal journeys, particularly, and I feel like this this skews on the younger end of YA but I devoured Beverly Cleary books, the Ramona series, and I felt like I identified with her so much. And when she would experience something that I had experienced, it validated like mm-hmm. my experience. And yeah, I, I, I totally get it. Yeah, because these books are being used by kids. And I mean, we're going to talk more about this, but these books are being used by kids to work through things, mm-hmm. you know, um, especially when we get into the topic of boys and and young men being given books that give them more credit as readers than just being about football or just being about like solving, you know, solving a problem on their sports team. Yeah. And and for YA Lit today, too, it's really breaking new ground, exposing kids to protagonists who are transgender or Mm -hmm. might have gay parents or, you know, like kind of exposing kids to more diverse perspectives. And um, it's not just young adults that this is appealing to, as we have now established. There's also been the rise of, quote unquote, kid lit book clubs among older readers, adults getting together intentionally reading, say, The Fault in Our Stars or The Giver or Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. I would love to be in a Judy Bloom book club. I'm just saying. So first of all, why don't we kick off with a brief history of YA because uh, this genre hasn't been around forever. Well, right, because when you think about our history as a society, let's not get too big with this, but if you think about our own history and give it some context, when did teenagers become a thing? I mean, that wasn't until about the 1940s that teenagers were even their own distinct social group with special teenagery types of needs, you know, like going and getting a, a malt and playing some tunes on the jukebox with Johnny. We were really, we would have been real hip teens back then, Caroline. I'm obviously so hip. But in 1942, you have the publication of Maureen Daly's 17th Summer, considered the first ever young adult novel. And of course, it's followed by a bunch of sports books for boys and more first love books for girls. They were pigeonholed as those being their only interests very early on. And then in the 1960s, not so long ago, the Young Adult Library coins the term young adult. And moving into the 70s, we see a popularity peak in YA with none other 
than Judy Bloom, and you also have uh, Robert Cormier's The Chocolate War and Lois Duncan, uh, and all of this kind of spun off into YA as the genre of the single problem novels. Right, and a lot of people who are passionate about uh, young adult, the young adult genre, um, whether they're writers or just readers, kind of complain about this period in young adult history, about the formulaic, like, solving one problem, whether it's, you know, parents splitting up or whether it's drugs at school or, or whatever. You know, a lot of people out there are saying, hey, life is more complicated than just solving one problem. You know, life is not a sitcom. Yeah, I mean, this was essentially the Degrassi of like the novelized version of Degrassi, where every single episode is a new tough teen issue to tackle. Yeah, but in the 1980s, we start to see more genre fiction, including one of my personal favorite writers growing up, R.L. Stein. He releases his Fear Street series in the 80s. You also have Sweet Valley High, which, Kristen, I never, I never read Sweet Valley High. I never read The Babysitter's Club. I read some Babysitter's Club. My older sisters read Sweet Valley High. I think that by the time I got around to Sweet Valley High, I w- was in a very strong little women phase. <laughs> so I just reread that a lot. So also in the 1980s, even though we're seeing different types of genre fiction emerge for young adults, a National Endowment for the Arts study showed that between 1982 and 2002, the number of young adults reading actually dropped a significant percent. It was down 20 percent. But starting in 2002 and going through 2008, it was up 21 percent. Amid all this, you have some really interesting things going on in the young adult publishing world, though. Yeah, it's really in the early 2000s where publishers begin marketing directly to teens. And lo and behold, when you start targeting your audience, you start getting a lot of returns. And this is also when we have the rise of the dystopian teen novel a la Hunger Games and... um Jennifer Lynn Barnes is a young adult author and a cognitive science scholar who was asked about the particular early 2000, the early aughts dystopian appeal. And she said, just like adolescence is between childhood and adulthood, paranormal or other is between human and supernatural. Teens are caught between two worlds, childhood and adulthood. And in YA, they can navigate those two worlds and sometimes dualities of other worlds mm. feel like a lot in YA is often very symbolic of or not so symbolic, just hammering home transition, transition. <laughs> You're going through this transitional phase. Right. And it, just in terms of publishing in 1997, there were 3000 YA titles published. Then in 2009, as a result of publishers starting to see a return on their marketing to teens, you have 30,000 YA titles being published. I mean, it is big business, especially now, too, with ebooks. You have more YA titles than ever before. Well, sure, because in that same period that you just cited, you have the five Harry Potter books. Yeah. Between 1998 and 2004, that's when the five Harry Potter books come out. And that's when everybody, like, everybody's world exploded. I I remember being... However old you are in 1998. Uh, anyway, I remember being like a teenager and thinking like, what is going on in the universe? It's exploding over this Harry Potter gibberish. Because people were making money. You know what adults love doing? 
It's making money. That's right. Off of the backs of children. But also, I had a lot of my friends who were obsessed with Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But so, okay, moving forward from from just talking about young adults. In 2009, St. Martin's Press launched the new adult genre featuring characters in their late teens and early 20s working through some of those slightly older young adult issues. This is so millennial. When I read this, it's just everything. It's like our millennial generation pigeonholed into a genre because new adult covers issues of separation and attachment, individuation and romantic, sexual and economic independence. Essentially, like we we're now maybe at this phase to where, okay. In the early 20th century, we have the establishment of this idea of childhood. Then in the 1940s and 50s, you have the establishment of this idea of teenagehood. And now with the millennials, it seems like we're now in this era of the development of this new adult, young adult, who is also an adult (laughs) idea, you know, who might be living at home, maybe not. And now we have literature all for us. And that's probably not a bad idea for publishers' bottom lines, especially when you consider that 55% of young adult books purchased in 2012 were bought by adults between 18 and 44 years old. And that's coming from a market research firm. But another recent uh, Pew survey found that people between 16 and 29 are checking out books more than anyone else from libraries. So this is a group that's like hungry for, for literature geared towards them. I'm in that group. I totally use my library card and I support my public library, even though, yes, it can be inconvenient to get to at times. <laughs> but this Summer Books episode stands in contrast to last year's episode when, when we really talked about the issue of uh, can you tell a gendered book by its gendered cover, talking about uh, whether or not female authors are taken as seriously and marketed via book covers as seriously as male authors and when you transition, and that's more with adult fiction, but when you transition now into YA, the conversation is more, ah, oh, there's so many women and they're just writing stories for girls. What about men? It's like <laughs> the exact opposite. Right. Megan Lewitt over at The Atlantic looked at NPR Books listener curated 100 best ever teen novels and found that it is dominated. Women are dominating in this list. Women like Harper Lee, Suzanne Collins, J.K. Rowling, Essie Hinton, Outsiders, what, what? She found that 63% of all 235 titles suggested by the readers were written by women. And when it comes to the readership that these authors appear to be writing for, at least reported on in the New York Times in 2011, it seems like a lot of these stories are for girls. Um, there's a quote from this article. At the 2007 ALA conference, a Harper executive said that at least three quarters of her target audience were girls and that they wanted to read about mean girls, gossip girls, frenemies and vampires. <laughs> and in that same article, the writer talked to Michael Cart, who's the past president of the Young Adult Library Services Association. And he was arguing that we need more books that invite boys to reflect on what kinds of men they want to become. We need to. It's great that we're giving all these girls all these books, but we need some more books focusing on boys so that they can reflect on their own young developing masculinity. But as for the question of why female authors tend to dominate 
YA, uh, there's this idea that especially now you basically have a lot of young female novelists jumping right into writing YA and then it's being bought. These stories are being bought by female editors and then being stocked by female librarians and then being taught by female teachers. So, hey, guess what? When you have the feminization of certain kinds of industries, you create certain cycles like this, apparently. And as Megan Lewitt goes on to talk about in her piece in The Atlantic, there's also maybe the idea that since YA as a genre is all about representing worlds of limitless potential, of teaching you know young kids how to make that transition to adulthood in a more empowered kind of way, perhaps that you know translates to the publishing world as well, to where perhaps YA is a little bit more inured from adult literature's gender bias that, that often happens in terms of male authors like uh, Jonathan Franzen being seen as a more serious writer. Mm-hmm. And nothing against Jonathan Franzen. <laughs> Big fan. So, you know, we were just discussing, um, we've been discussing gender and you know, things being dominated by women. Do we need more strong boy characters for our male readers out there? There's a whole lot of interesting diversity issues out there in this young adult field. And we're going to get into a lot more of those when we come right back from a quick break. So as we mentioned, when we were jumping through the history of YA, in the 1970s, you sort of have it spiral into these single problem novels where every novel is a new issue, whether, you know, parents are getting divorced or a teen got pregnant on on and on and on. And even though we've moved away from that more formulaic 1970s style, why is still focused today on not necessarily just single problem issues, but nonetheless, like th- there is a particular focus on, OK, are we going to talk what what kind of obstacle is this younger character going to get through? And will there be issues of, you know, LGBT diversity or racial diversity? Mm-hmm. Like what's going on with these kids stories? I feel like there's more strategic focus on issues rather than just a blanket story in YA, because a lot of it seems to be teaching kids a lesson. Right. And and like, you know, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, a lot of kids, particularly younger kids, report that they do read books to figure out where they want to take their lives. Not only do they want to let their imagination run free, but they also sort of want to figure out, like, where do I fit? And it can be hard for kids who are different than what is the normal presentation to find their place when they're not even written about. The normal presentation being like a, you know, cisgender, straight, white, male or female protagonist. Yeah, and so there's been a lot of attention paid of late to diversity representations in YA Lit. And uh, this data we're about to toss out at you is coming from Publishers Weekly and some analysis from Ellen O., uh, a YA author who is writing for Racialicious. And as of March 2014, of the 123 young adult titles on the Publishers Weekly list, 23 count as diverse. So just 19% of the total are really diverse novels. And 12 of those 123 titles involve main characters 
of color. Mm-hmm. Seven of the main characters are LGBT and about seven are disabled. Yeah. And speaking specifically about characters of color, young adult author Sharon Flake writing in the New York Times Room for Debate section called for more non-white protagonists. And her reasoning was that when African-American characters speak, it gives not just black youth permission to speak and see the value of who they are, but others as well. Like, how important is it when kids are young and they're developing and they're learning about the world through literature, through the eyes of these characters, how important it is to let them see the world through someone else's eyes if they're learning about other people or in the case of these characters of color who seem to be largely missing from these narratives, it's so important for these kids to see themselves reflected in the pages. Oh, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, I mentioned my love for Ramona Quimby earlier. Part of that deep connection was the fact that she, like me, was a younger sister with brown hair, kind of a tomboy, Her father smoked and she didn't like it. I mean, it was down to the T. I felt like I was reading about someone who could be my twin. Uh huh. Well, and, and speaking though of protagonists of color, Victoria Law over at Bitch did an entire blog series called Girls of Color in Dystopia, looking closely at the representation of girls of color in 40 YA books. And she found that only 14 had girls of color as prominent characters. Four had girls of color as sidelined or very minor characters, and 22 of them had no identifiable girls of color in them at all. Right. She actually highlights short story anthologies, Diverse Energies, and After, 19 Stories of Apocalypse and Dystopia. And she's she was writing also about how, you know, she pulled some of these book ideas from various places around the Internet. But she also used her daughter as someone to suggest titles for her to read, kind of driving home that idea, too, that, hey, you know, our daughters are watching or our sons are watching. We need to provide them with characters they can really relate to. Yeah. And and similar to last year's book episode on uh, Can You Judge a Book by its Gendered Cover, why author Ellen O. over at Racialicious was calling for more diversity in YA covers instead of the go-to pretty white girl on the cover because, and she likens it to the need for diversity in fashion, saying, to say that only pretty white girls can sell YA books is not a business model that publishers should approve of. And that's not true. We need to look no further than the gender neutral and iconic covers for the Hunger Games and Twilight series to see the truth. And even though, you know, the Hunger Games and Twilight series are starring, you know, pretty white girls, it's a good point that it's not those faces that were sending those books flying off the shelves. And and speaking of representation as well, it was also notable that The Fault in Our Stars, which stars... A teen with a disability has been the top selling title for 2012 and 2013 in this genre. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, considering I have not read it or seen the movie. But I mean, it's it's really emotional. Am, am it's I right? very emotional. Right. And and one point that people make about these young adult novels is that they their prose is so clear and they tend to use emotion as a way to tell these transformational stories that, that, well, young people or adults can really relate to. 
Um, and speaking of relating to characters, do you like that transition? That was great. Thank you. Um, we also need to talk about, obviously, LGBT characters in young adult fiction. Um, and Melinda Lowe, uh, young adult author Melinda Lowe, was talking about this very topic. She pointed out that 2003 was a watershed year for LGBT characters in YA. Because that year we saw the publication of David Levithan's Boy Meets Boy, Julianne Peters' Keeping You a Secret, Brent Hardinger's Geography Club, and Alex Sanchez's Rainbow High. And just two years later, in 2005, we saw 25 LGBT young adult novels published. But Melinda Lowe does point out that a majority of these titles are about cisgender gay guys, which is kind of fascinating that it's usually a gay male protagonist. And they're almost always in a contemporary genre. There's little intersectionality going on where you might have a disabled lesbian leading the way or, you know, a a gay protagonist in space or, you know, there's not much, not much. uh, There's very little cross sectioning happening. So similar to what Ellen O said about, you know, presenting young adult covers with only young girls, young white girls on the cover and how there's this perception that that's all that will get these books to sell. Lowe points out that there is a persistent belief among a lot of agents and publishers that LGBT main characters don't sell, that anybody who is different from the very structured norm will not attract a wide enough audience. But... The gay characters in Cassandra Clare's Mortal Instruments series were so popular that they spawned a New York Times best-selling ebook series called The Bane Chronicles. And then there's also the Pretty Little Liars series, which has been wildly successful and, yes, turned into that show on the CW, which has a bisexual main character and sometimes her bisexuality mm-hmm. is explored in that. So it's a, a bad argument that, hey, LGBT doesn't sell. Yeah, it, it, it does. Let them write that. Yeah. And part of that whole thing about telling authors that your gay character won't sell very well is there's also this ugly effort to get writers to straighten their gay characters that they've written. And and uh, there are even authors out there who talk about, yeah, my editor went in and made these changes without even consulting me, made this character, whether it's one of the main characters or whether it's sort of a side character, made this person straight without even asking me. Yeah, and at the risk of being blacklisted by agents and publishers, not too long ago, Rachel Manija Brown, author of All the Fishes Come Home to Roost, and Sherwood Smith, author of Crown Duel, and a lot of other YA books, wrote about, wrote a blog post about how an agent offered to sign them only if they straightened a gay character in a book that they co-wrote. And they talked about how anecdotally this happens pretty frequently. And they didn't out the agent who brought this up, but they said that they hear about this a lot from other authors who don't want to speak up about this Mm -hmm. because if you start going around telling secrets about what agents are telling you, what conditions they're laying out, then, you know, the publishing industry might might shut you down. And they did underscore and stress the fact that a lot of this has to do with money. They they said, you know, we're not trying to make a commentary on anyone's personal beliefs or lifestyles or anything as far as the agents themselves go, because in their personal lives, maybe Maybe they're gay or maybe they're totally supportive of gay rights. But the fact remains that they are an agent of a larger company, which is trying to make money. And if that party line for that company is that gay characters don't sell, the agents have to toe that line. But nonetheless, 
you do have authors who are persisting and writing multiple LGBT YA titles such as Alex Sanchez, Ellen Hopkins, and Ellen Whitlinger. And so I have a feeling the more authors continue to write these books, the more they sell, the more that old line of thinking within publishing houses will hopefully erode. And I mean, race and sexuality are are two, just two aspects of of issues, life issues, societal issues that get figured out through reading these books. Gender roles themselves, whether you're gay or straight, black or white, are also like a huge portion of what these books are about. Just figuring where figuring out where you stand. Yeah, one quote that jumped out to me from Melinda Lowe is that a lot of the discourse on YA fiction, especially in this era of Twilight, has been about gender, particularly whether YA fiction provides good role models for girls and boys. And I mean, it makes sense that a lot of these gender role issues are inherently tied up in YA because they're taking place yet again in with characters going through this transitional period of, you know, moving from being a teenager, a child into being a A woman or a man. A woman. And what does that mean? What does that mean in terms of, you know, your agency, how, how you interact with people, what you, what your ambitions are? Right. And I mean, speaking about agency in Twilight, I mean, a lot of people's argument about those books is that Bella is sort of a shell of a character who lives for men or these two men in particular and that, you know, she's not living for herself and her own purposes and that she's not a good role model. But, it is that issue of having good role models that young adult author Steve Brezinoff was tackling when he said that we need to see more characters that we find compelling, be they boys or girls, not because there's a shortage, but because that's what realistic fiction is. And we love realistic fiction. Well, and it does seem to that speaking of gender roles, feminism has a, a pretty good place in YA fiction. I think if you talk to a lot of women our age, they cite Judy Bloom and Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, and Forever as being these books that sort of lit those early fires of thinking about their female identities and, and how they relate to the world in that way. Mm-hmm. And Kelly Jensen, who's a librarian who has a writes for a fantastic blog, Stacked, was t- said, quote, and oh, how the young adult world embraces feminism with wide open arms. And I wonder, though, too, side note, if this is related to the fact that this is an area of the publishing world where you simply have more female voices and more Mm -hmm. female representation. So maybe it is more open to these kinds of themes. But she cited some contemporary examples, such as My Big Fat Manifesto by Susan Vaught, which is about this girl who is very overweight, but she's uh, her high school's advice columnist. And she's like totally cool with her own body. She loves her shape. She loves the skin that she is in. And it's actually her boyfriend who is also overweight and ends up deciding that he wants to, you know, go through some physical transformation and lose some weight. And she supports him in that. It's not the typical thing of, well, you know, she's going to go through her own transformation and lose a bunch of weight and then become prom queen and everyone lives happily ever after. Yeah, this character in this book gets to love herself. She gets to love herself, unlike so many other heroines of similar books that, that are out there. But she gets to love herself and she gets to support her boyfriend in pursuing what will make him happy Yeah, for himself. Making those choices for 
his body. And speaking of which, she also name checks Megan McCafferty's Bumped series, which is essentially dystopia meets reproductive rights. Uh, it takes place in this era when girls are essentially sold off to be breeders. Mm-hmm. And so it goes into all, I mean, you can imagine all the different, you know, related themes over autonomy of over one's body and agency and again yes reproductive rights but um i really enjoyed reading about reading about the perspective on characters in these books that focus on body issues because you know it's not i don't know i don't know that i've ever read a young adult novel that focused on like a weight loss journey or someone who won the won her dream man or got a spot on the cheerleading squad after losing a bunch of weight i know that it's something that we covered in our movie makeover episode but over at stacked kelly jensen again points out that there's all of these really problematic weight loss and just weight-centric tropes that tend to be focused on in young adult novels. Like I said earlier, that character in My Big Fat Manifesto got to love herself. She was written as someone who loved herself, whereas a lot of times in young adult novels, characters who are overweight are portrayed as people who... They they could lose weight if they wanted to, but maybe they just can't get up the the energy or the desire to or they have a lack of support from their family or that they're constantly plagued by fat related fears like their entire life is revolving around the fear that they're going to break a chair. They're not allowed to just be characters who exist and who are also overweight. Yeah. And and so she she highlights those as being some problematic tropes that often pop up. In YA novels and important to highlight that because this is the age, as we were talking about in our body shaming epidemic episode, where, I mean, these are the formative years for how we perceive our own bodies. Mm -hmm. So definitely important to talk about body issues in as healthy a way as possible. And over at School Library Journal, Manaz Dar highlights some books that do that really well such as I Am Jay by Chris Beam that doesn't look so much at weight issues, but rather um, tackles transgender realization. Um, there's also Skinny by Donna Cooner that is sort of an anti-fairy tale about a girl who gets gastric bypass surgery. And initially you think, oh, no, we're starting to peddle in some tropes here. But the weight loss ends up having unintended negative results. As as the story progresses. Yeah. And Jensen writes, I mean, talking about those tropes regarding weight loss, she talks about how a lot of these books might feature a character who loses weight. And as a result, just just like we see in movies all the time, is rewarded with the boyfriend, with the prom queen recognition or whatever. And Jensen writes that, you know, it's important to know for our young girls that Losing weight doesn't automatically earn you all these things, you know, popularity, boyfriends, all this stuff that it's important to love yourself and be strong in who you are and earn those things through being yourself rather than simply fitting into a certain size dress. Well, and the fact that there is that focus on the, you know, communicating body positivity, representation, adventure, overcoming obstacles that continue to run throughout YA fiction. It's no surprise that the appeal lasts 
beyond a younger readership. I mean, we could go on and on and on about the the different kinds of issues that YA tends to tackle. But to wrap up this episode, let's talk about the the adult appeal of YA. Why do we keep reading these books and wanting to talk about these books? I feel like if you get in a room with women in their 20s and just say the two words, Judy Bloom, <laughs> there you go. You're going to be talking for the next hour. Yeah, it's funny how passionate so many adults feel about these genres of books, whether they read them in their childhood and are revisiting them now or whether they're reading them for the first time. But they also, a lot of these writers, a lot of these readers will talk about how it's not uncommon to be totally criticized and made fun of by your friends. But Scholastic actually started a, an I Read YA campaign to promote it for all ages, saying like, hey, guys, it's OK to be a grown up and really love the way these stories are told. Yeah. And Melinda Lowe, whom we've cited a number of times now, who's author, also a YA author, started a, a hashtag why adults read YA on Twitter. And some of the responses she received included I enjoyed the immediacy of the stories and the sense of being at the beginning of the path of who you'll become. Mm. And I love the intensity of the first time experiences, experimentation and growth that we're told to stop doing as adults. Right. And Agent Meredith Barnes was discussing this very same topic. And she says that every decision feels life changing and every choice in these books can seem life or death. The emotions are no more or less valid than what one might experience at 30. But it's the first time and thus very powerful. And who was it who also pointed out that if a a young character is on the precipice of should I do drugs or whatever the the case may be, there's like almost like a loss of innocence at stake. Whereas if an adult does it, it's more like, oh, well, that adult is just making an adult choice. Right. And in the New York Times, Patricia McCormick, who's an author, was quoted as saying that basically also what attracts grown-ups to young adult fiction is that young adult authors are taking risks with narrative structure, voice, and social commentary that you don't see as often in adult fiction. And there's something, I don't want to use the word pure, but there's something like very clear and almost emotional about these young adult novels and the way that they're written that maybe you don't see in a bunch of adult books that are trying to be that are trying to be epic. Yeah. I won't name names. But, you know, the books that are more like dramatic and overwrought for drama's sake. Yeah, I flew through the first Hunger Games novel because, not not because I'm an amazing speed reader, but just because the dialogue and the action, like everything is so clear cut, you can literally lose yourself in these books and sort of gobble them up Mm -hmm. very quickly, Mm -hmm. which can be a nice moment of escape from our... Day-to-day hectic adult lives. I know. Maybe I need to now go read a bunch of young adult novels because I, I've i been reading a lot of uh, nonfiction regarding like how our brains work. I feel like I need maybe a bit of a, 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 a escape, a bit of a mental clarity escape. Oh, and I feel like YA is perfect for summer reading mm-hmm. because you just want, if you just want a little bit of it doesn't necessarily have to be light fiction. I mean, they talk about really tough stuff sometimes, but it can that tough stuff can sometimes be easier to wade through mm-hmm. in a YA format. And I'll tell you, my summer reading project this year, Caroline and listeners, I'm going to be honest with you. I have never read Judy Bloom. I was not allowed to read Judy Bloom as a child because my mother thought that she was too scandalous. Yes, it's true. So I want to go back and read 
for the first time, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. I have never read Judy Bloom either. We gotta do it. For the sake of the fact that we're doing this episode. Yeah, and then maybe we can have our own book club. Exactly. On the internet. Oh, an internet book club. Well, I think with that, should we turn it over to our reading listeners? Absolutely. Yeah, let us know what kind of YA you love. What are some of your favorite titles? What are some of your favorite series? What is it about YA that has such a lasting appeal? Or are you people like... Time editor Joel Stein, who in that New York Times room for debate about YA was the one person saying, no, adults should not read these books because they're for kids. What a negative Nancy. Read, go, go away. Read some Thomas Pynchon. <laughs> Come on, grow up. Which I, I mean, I, I understand that. But YA is also fantastic. Um, so email us. Your YA thoughts, mom stuff at howstuffworks.com. And you can find all of the links to all of the sources that we're talking about. If you want to look at any of these publishing sources, uh, we're also going to have a giant list of YA recommendations for you over at stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. So be sure to head over there and check that out. And we got a couple of letters to share with you right now. I have a letter here from Cheryl that's related to our um, Military Wives episode. And in that episode, you know, we talked about how uh, spouses being deployed and being gone for long periods of time, how that must relate to other professions, too, that have, uh, you know, long times away, basically. But anyway... Cheryl wrote that um, I went into it very interested as I have a close friend who is a military wife with a deployed husband and two children under three. To make it through the deployment, she has moved cross-country to stay with her folks who live two doors down from me. I wanted to see how her experiences reflected your findings and found them to be quite similar. So thank you for bringing awareness to the tough times on the home front for these families. The podcast did get me to thinking about what may surprise folks as a strangely related topic. Doctors, wives, and clearly husbands too, but you get the point. My friend and I find welcome support in our shared experiences and feelings related to the stresses, impacts on our children, and general lifestyles created by our husband's professions. If ever there was a stereotype, it would be the golf-playing doctor and his wife, the well-dressed tennis player. Oh, how inaccurate and lovely-sounding that is. My husband and I are eight years into his ten years of training. When we finish, he will be a neonatologist. This road is incredibly misunderstood by anyone outside the field, starting with our own well-intending families and friends. The stress, massive work hours, regular 24- to 30-hour work shifts, and monetary and emotional strain all play significantly into the dynamics of the work and home life. It is a no-frills, stressful life much of the time, similar to that of our wonderful military families. Doctors' wives at least have the benefit of seeing their husbands most days, even if only for a few minutes. As part of our coping, I take our toddler to see my husband at the hospital for dinner on Fridays so they at least don't get too many days without seeing each other. And Cheryl says, please don't get the wrong impression. I am in no way trying to diminish the incredible sacrifice made by those in the military, nor trying to gain sympathy for doctor's wives, only looking to offer the real insight behind this stereotype. So thanks so much, Cheryl. And I've got a letter here from Jenny about our episode on bronies. And she writes... I'm the mother of a two-year-old girl who is a huge My Little Pony fan, and my husband and I like the show quite a bit as well. It's well-written, the art is attractive, and unlike 90% of kids' cartoons, it doesn't make us want to shoot ourselves in the head when the little one asks to see the same episode yet again. I think it's awful the way young boys and some earnest young men are bullied over enjoying this show. 
That said, in many ways, I am annoyed at the brony subculture and some of the ways that it behaves as an entity. They behave in a very entitled manner, often getting upset when the show dares to cater to its intended audience instead of them, and they buy up all the merchandise before kids can get to them. But there is one thing that is worst of all. They create pony porn and don't tag it. Little kids who want to find pictures of their favorite characters will see awful things if they search for them on Google Images or Bing, even if the safe search is on. They basically make fandom an unsafe place for the target audience for the show, children, and that is unforgivable. So uh, she also goes on to say, though, that uh, the ponies are rad and that she really enjoys you know, letting her daughter watch this show. She says she not only learns about love, friendship, and caring, but also about strength and virtue and how there are many ways to be a girl and they don't all look the same and that's not only okay, it's awesome. And I'm happy that it's not just little girls, but also little boys and young men who are learning this lesson as well. But clearly one lesson they need to learn too, if it's happening, tag your pony porn for the children's sake. Oh, Lord. Tag your pony porn. And with that, we invite you to write us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com. No, we're not implying that all bronies are making pony porn. Just for the ones that do, tag it, please. You can also find all of our social media links, podcasts, blogs, and videos at stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 